Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today we have with us Sylvia Earle, who is known in her field of oceanography as her royal deepness. Although I don't think everybody says royal, I think they usually just refer to her as her deepness. Uh, welcome. It's a, it's, a, it's a privilege to have you here uh, with us today. It's um, great to be on board. We're going to be talking about your latest book, and I'm going to cut right to the chase, Sylvia, because we are limited in time and we have a lot to talk about. Just what, most of the world. I beg your pardon? It's just most of the world, the ocean. Yes, most of the world. What, what would you like your readers of this wonderful magnum opus, what would you like them to most take away? when from reading the book if you had a magic wand and you say this is what i want the people they, they're going to look at the book and this is what they're going to remember what do you want them to remember and know i hope it inspires their curiosity to want to literally dive in and learn more to realize how important the ocean is to every breath we take every drop of water we drink actually to our very existence. The book is an attempt to sort of gather the latest insights, not, not, not just mine, I, I have spent many decades splashing around in the ocean, trying to get to know it from the inside out, but also tuning into the insights from dozens of explorers, scientists, engineers, visionaries, who have been asking the questions, why should I care about the ocean? Uh, what's the ocean ever done for me? And what are we doing to the ocean? And why must we be mindful of what we're putting into the ocean, what we're taking out of the ocean, how the ocean affects climate, how climate is affecting the ocean, all of these things. And if people can be inspired to look at the ocean with new eyes and new care, then we will have accomplished what was intended with the book. Should people be concerned about the ocean? The ocean is in trouble owing to the vast amounts of toxins, garbage, trash, plastics, et cetera, that we have put into the ocean largely in the last century at an increasing rate. And also what we've taken out, we have taken literally 90% of many of the creatures that are common on our menu these days, and some that are not, but are also being greatly depleted like krill that thrive in polar seas. They're actually found in the ocean globally, but you know, several species are notable for their abundance, in, especially around, around Antarctica, where they are the cornerstone 
of the Antarctic ecosystem and have a major role in the carbon cycle, which we should be thinking about, oh, climate, yes, carbon cycle, and taking hundreds of millions of tons of these wild creatures out of the ocean, along with hundreds of millions of tons of squid and swordfish and tuna and you name it. Our appetite for wildlife extracted from the sea has not only had an unfavorable impact on the health of the ocean and the chemistry of the ocean, but also because they're all carbon-based organisms, as all organisms are, it's affecting climate as well. For those who are uneducated about krill, please tell us what krill is. <laughs> Think shrimp on a miniature scale, about the length of your little finger, about the size of those very abundant and very important creatures that occupy um, the ocean around the world. But notably in Antarctica during the summer months in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, that means our winter months in the Northern Hemisphere, the sun allows photosynthesis to, and phytoplankton to prosper. And it really does. Water that is very clear during the, the dark times of the year turns really murky with green, green organisms that are churning out oxygen and capturing carbon dioxide. It's the carbon cycle in action. It's the oxygen cycle in action. So those mighty forests of miniature organisms, zooplankton, little animals, including the krill, really um, gobble up the nutrients that are there and pass their substance along to little fish and big fish and birds and whales and seals and <laughs> you name it. They're cornerstone species. Whales cannot directly feed on phytoplankton, but they can munch on the organisms that take, that, that, that dine on the phytoplankton. So think of krill and also squid and small fish as the middlemen. They translate the sun's energy that is captured by the phytoplankton turned into food that these small creatures eat that then the big creatures can access. Without those middlemen, um, a lot of creatures would not be able to survive, even though photosynthesis is creating food. It's food that they can't access. They can't get to it. And why should the average person care about this, since the average person doesn't think of themselves as coming in contact with all of these natural processes that you're describing? It's something that's very distant or happening under the water. How is it, what's the connection between that pr process that you're describing and people living on the earth? Well, if you like to breathe, you'll listen up. Photosynthesis, this amazing process that enables green organisms, I don't mean frogs, I mean trees and ferns and mosses and phytoplankton and algae, seaweed, 
mangroves, seagrasses, uh, marshes. Photosynthesis captures carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, out of the ocean, and in the presence of water, which is handy in the ocean, but on the land, up through the roots of trees, the water is accessed by the leaves. Anyway, photosynthesis, process where you take H2O, water, and CO2, carbon dioxide, and in the presence of light and chlorophyll, oxygen is generated and carbon dioxide is fixed as sugar, food. This is what keeps us in groceries and, and oxygen. It's what keeps all life, not all life, but, but terrestrial life and much of life in the ocean. There's another process called chemosynthesis that happens in the absence of light, but it's common in the deep sea where light does not shine, and also in deep soil where organisms take the chemicals that are available and synthesize food, capture carbon, and pass it along to various food chains. Why should you care? Because <laughs> this remarkable process has transformed rocks and water, the basic ingredients of this planet and other places in the universe as well. But this living planet has been made hospitable for the likes of us because of this action that has been taking place for hundreds of millions of years. We have a planet that now works in our favor. We have this fabric of life. When you look around, wherever you live on the planet, there are living things. Wherever you look around in the ocean, there are living things. This is remarkably, this is a living planet. And our existence is possible because of the chemistry of life, of the existence of all these other creatures that have transformed an inhospitable planet to one that is truly uh, one that is in our favor. We are we are creatures of this planet. So what you're saying, if I understand you, is that even more so than the forests, which is what most people relate to as giving us oxygen and, and eating up carbon dioxide, that even more so than the forests, what's going on in the oceans is providing us with the oxygen that we need. And that we're missing- it. That's it, that's it. exactly right. And we're missing the boat by not focusing more on the oceans. And, and by the way, we aren't. I mean, in terms of publicity out to the world, it appears to me that there's, there's, there's much more focus on, on the trees and what we're doing with deforestation than, than what we're doing with the ocean. Well, it's and, really important to focus on trees and deforestation. It really, you know, there's this big project now other way, which I applaud, of planting a trillion trees. I especially applaud it if they plant the right trees in the right places, not just any old tree in any old place, but the right trees in the right place, native trees, and mindful of what it takes to really succeed in, in growing trees and having them prosper. But at the same time, we're cutting trees. We're cutting 
old trees, those that have taken centuries or sometimes even millennia to grow, like ancient redwoods, are still being cut and burned. And they are lost. The carbon is sent up into the atmosphere, and the natural carbon capturing system is also lost. The same is true in the ocean. When we degrade the ocean by what we're taking out, and also because of all the toxins and trash that we're putting in, we're disrupting the, this basic process that keeps us alive, generating oxygen, capturing carbon. I mean, and what is especially perverse right now is clear-cutting the ocean of wildlife. We call it seafood. You know, it's become a habit that globally we're taking wild animals out of the ocean on an industrial scale. It's one thing if you're feeding your family, feeding your community, if you're a coastal dweller or live on, in, on islands where extracting wildlife is really part of your sustenance. And, and it's something that is rarely done on a scale that really eliminates an ecosystem or eliminates a species. But since the middle of the 20th century, industrial fishing has scaled up using techniques that were really developed during World War II and the Cold War that followed with materials, with devices such as sonar that really was used in wartime to find enemy submarines and other devices, mines underwater, now being applied to find fish. There's no place for fish to hide anymore. They have no security of being removed from where humans can go. Uh, when we began motorizing fishing fleets and, and arming them with navigation technologies so you know exactly where you are, you know where the fish are, and you have the development now of techniques, either speed to fly within 24 hours, live catches that have taken half a world away to like the Tokyo fish market, can be supplied with tuna taken in the Atlantic the next day. And they're still very, you know, even without the kinds of refrigeration that now makes possible the large scale shipping of, of, of animals that are caught and, and they're taken fresh to markets globally or frozen and stored for months and taken to markets globally. So 90% of many of the big fish that were once common are now down to this low level, 10% or even less. Some sharks are down to the point of 1% or less than what they were in the 1970s. We've gotten so good at finding, catching, and marketing ocean wildlife that there are serious concerns about the ability of many of these animals to recover. You're saying that in the last 50 years alone, just this short period, 50 years, we've taken out 99% of the sharks. Did I hear that right? 99 of some of the species, 90% yes. of, of across the board. So what but you're it, saying, if I understand you, 
is that we've done the same thing to the ocean as we've done to the animals in Africa. Right on, only more so, and we've done it more quickly. And what we've done to animals on the land has taken us literally thousands of years, but mostly speeding up the process of eliminating large quantities of the, of the animals on the land in the last 50 years. You know, the dreadful decline of lions and tigers, giraffes, and yet we still are killing them, killing them directly and even having game hunts. I mean, I have the verses that, that we are taking the last people paying big bucks for the privilege of killing one of these important animals. I say they're beautiful, that's, and they're, but more than that, it just seems like a, a sacrilege to take the life of these animals when we're, our lives are not threatened. We're not using them for food. It's just sport killing, killing for the fun of it. I, I really think something's twisted in our minds and we think that's heroic, something to be proud of, to be ashamed of ourselves for, for fostering that kind of, of activity. Well, we're still killing one another around the planet. Exactly, and I think so it all ties together. <laughs> it does. I mean, it, we're not eating one another for the most part, although some still do. But, uh, but we're certainly killing each other. And, no kidding. And, and I think it really does all tie together. It's lack of respect for life. And how do we, how do we ever get to that stage where we just think so little of this miracle of being alive when you really... Just being here. Just imagine the the tr the beyond trillions, I don't know the next word for it, but of, of, of sperm that never made it, and the <laughs> trillions of eggs that never made it. And we're the ones who had the best swimmers and the best catchers, and we and got here. We <laughs> and then that's true. When you think Okay, it's true with every cat, every dog, every horse, every cow, every fish. The miracle of that individual's existence is something to respect. And when we, I, I just don't understand how we can be so casual and so callous about life itself. When, when you realize, look out at the stars at night, if you live somewhere where you can see stars, and if you don't, you should get to somewhere where you can. Definitely. So you can appreciate, here we are, this rock, this miraculous living earth in a universe that is not really friendly to life. Or maybe life elsewhere, but you're not going to find elephants anywhere else. You're not going to find whales or redwood trees or grass or corn or, or any of the things that we take for granted here on earth. So there, there may be microbes out there. I expect there are. I'm astonished if we don't find some evidence of what we think of as life somewhere else. But the exuberance of life on this planet that has made possible our existence, this is it. This is it. This is our home. This is little blue miracle. And to not just enjoy and savor 
the experience of being aware and knowing what 21st century human beings can know that our predecessors could not. Even a hundred years ago, no one had seen Earth from space. No one had been to the deepest parts of the ocean. And no one had been able to communicate the way we communicate today, the way we're communicating right now. <laughs> we are so gifted with that superpower of knowledge, of knowing. We, we are the luckiest, maybe not just humans, but luckiest organisms ever have existed because of what is now knowable. And at the same time, look around the headlines, everyday news. There's a lot of reason for despair because of our crazy behavior. We've taken this remarkable gift and used it for such perverse outcomes. Uh, I, I could... I could slip into despair, but I am compelled to turn away from the negative and celebrate the good things that are happening. And there are a lot, a lot of good news. Well, I'd like to hear some of it because I can tell you that I'm a, a, a quite an optimistic person. And as we've been talking, I can feel myself getting sadder and sadder. Literally, literally tears forming in my eyes, I'm not exaggerating, and, 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 and feeling so discouraged because the things that you're saying are touching off so many other thoughts about similar things that we're doing around the planet to destroy other parts of the planet, along with your specialty, the ocean. And, 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 and I was looking for some, how do I find some way to be a little more upbeat about this until you, you know, you said, well, we, we've got to, of course, existentially keep, keep celebrating what we do have, but it's, it's looking, it's looking rather grim. And in, in addition to what we're doing to the ocean and the forest, and I certainly want to hear a lot more about the ocean from you today. If I may just politically, the, the situation on the planet, is not looking very good at this time either, because it, it appears that that there's movement around the planet to what's referred to as a more fascistic form of, uh, of world government, which sort of falls in line with the destruction uh, of the forests and the destruction of the ocean. And it, it is, so where I, when I go to, to find some optimism, I go to the fact that the world has become extinct or close to extinct. Uh, how many five times now, as best we know, yeah. that are recorded? And, and yes, right. Right, five times. So, and each time we've made a comeback. And so that's where I look for the optimism saying, well, you know, the earth's been around for billions and billions of years, and we're just here for this little tiny period of time and we make a big deal about it. But even if we do destroy the whole thing, we'll be back in another few billion years in another form and, it'll, and maybe they'll do better than we have and learn from the experience. Tell us a bit more about, uh, more because I say that some people are, are, are slightly aware of it, about what we're doing 
not only with extracting the animals out of the ocean, as you portrayed, but what we're dumping into the ocean as if it's a fine, it's an infinite dumping grounds. Well, it's a little perverse, isn't it, to use the same place where we dump our trash to extract food. (laughs) (laughs) We think we know better than that. But in any case, we're beginning to appreciate the value of life in the ocean as more than just a place to go get free groceries, which is kind of the way we treat it. As if, you know, you can go in and take what you like and you don't have to pay for it. It's like, what's not to love about a, you know, free goods, except they're not free. We're not really accounting for the true cost. But to your point about what we're putting in, using it as the ultimate place to dump things, we know now, did not know a thousand years ago when we were already generating trash and making mounds of trash that are now archaeological sites. (laughs) But there is no way. Everything connects to everything else. And what we put into the ocean, old fishing nets and lines that were made of these new durable materials came along in the 1950s and 60s. They're still out there because they're durable. That's one of their great charms, these good... Plastic materials are relatively inexpensive and they last a long time. They do. <laughs> They're still out there. When they break up, as eventually much of it does, it just goes into smaller pieces, microplastics, and then even nanoplastics that are microscopic but still maintaining their integrity as these exotic materials that do not exist in nature, but they now exist throughout nature, including so small they get wafted into the atmosphere, little tiny fragments of these plastic degraded goods that wind up in the water, wind up in the air, they're breathing these nanoplastics and drinking nanoplastics. We've infused our living planet with these weird, well, I can say they're useful because we use plastics in many aspects of our modern day life. And I'm not saying that plastics are bad in their own right, but what we do with them when we're through with them has given the planet and us big problems. So consider in nature, there is no waste. In nature, everything that is generated by any organism that we think of as waste gets recycled, put back into the system. Like whales poop, but and they're big. And, and all that nutrient goes back into the system and powers the plankton, phytoplankton, that then generates zooplankton, like generates little fish, squid, and the like, that the fish and whales consume. It's like an ongoing cycle. Recycling, what a concept. We have started to do this, but we've made it pretty difficult for ourselves. Instead of thinking from the beginning of creating something, whatever it is, 
a computer, a telephone, a refrigerator, a car, that we are going to take pains at the beginning to make sure that every bit of that has a place in another life to regenerate those bits and pieces that we have created to make whatever it is so that it goes back and becomes like great transformer toys, whatever, becomes something else. The same materials, but spread out back into the system, doing whatever it is that they have a, a place to do. It is starting. That circular economy is the term being used for it, or whatever you call it. It's common sense that nothing goes away. We generate trash that builds up and builds up and builds up. And I mean, what do they call that mountain of trash in uh, New York? Mount Trashmore? <laughs> Something like that. And, and they're all, it's big cities all over the world. We've got these places where we put our junk. But more than that, the, the waste generated from industry, toxic materials that are difficult to process because, again, they're, they're manufactured materials. And yes, some crafty bacteria or other microbes eventually may have an appetite for some of these and break them down into their basic elements. And we've really overloaded the system. We came with a spacecraft, Earth, and we arrived. Everything was just right for us. You know, there are difficulties, cold weather, hot weather, storms, disease, but generally speaking, the planet overall, it is the most favorable place in all of the universe for our existence. And we have taken this miraculous system and carved it up, taken huge bites out of it, poisoned it. It's as if we were given a mandate to destroy the earth. In order to under to to do so disrupt it that we could we'll do ourselves in, but I don't think that's really our intent. But when you pull back, and the kids of today are doing just that, <laughs> they're looking around and looking at their future, and they're asking some tough questions. And we should be listening because we still have a chance. Do we still have a chance? Do we still have a chance, Sylvia? Do we still have a chance? I'm really encouraged by actions that I see happening where this decline, not as an overall recovery, but there are parts that show evidence that it, it can work. If we really work together and take it seriously, this decline I am confident can be turned into recovery. We can never go back to that that magical place that existed 10,000 years ago when our species really began to flourish in a magnified way. And we've been scaling up, scaling up, scaling up, population growing, little, little waivers here and there, like smallpox and the bubonic plague and it kind of hold us back, but we keep going, going, going. Now we're close to 8 billion people, but we have not truly been accounting for the cost of our prosperity. We are now, I think, 
at that sweet spot in time when, as never before, we really know the danger we're in. We have evidence all around climate, disease, the, the increased intensity and frequency of storms, you know, the sea level rise, <laughs> whatever it is. Poverty is a consequence of, of our own actions, what we've been doing to the very systems, social systems and ecosystems, natural, that foster this disparity in human well-being. But to the good news part, there are more whales than when I was a child, more turtles than when I was a child, because we, generally speaking, have reduced the amount of killing. We haven't stopped killing them, but we have significantly hit the pause button. And commercial killing of whale has stopped. People are beginning to respect sea turtles for something more than food or ornaments. They use a shell for creating ornaments in some countries. But, you know, generally they're more because of positive action. When an area on the land is protected, you can find things in a park, a national park, that you don't find on, on the outside. The, the abundance and diversity of birds or insects or plants, the things that, you know, when you let give nature a break, provide a safe haven, nature flourishes. And if you really are smart, you'll let it grow out from where these safe havens are. Let, let them spread. Let the birds be safe no matter where they go, not just in the protected areas. And some of that has been working too. We have corridors that are protected for migrating birds. We're, we're starting to do the same thing for the ocean. At the COP26 climate conference I attended that in Glasgow, four nations announced their agreement to allow in their offshore waters safe passage, a corridor for ocean wildlife. This is Colombia, Costa Rica, Panama, and Ecuador to recognize that whales, and turtles, sharks, and other sea life tunas don't know where our boundaries are. They, they have boundaries or pathways in the sea, just as birds and monarch butterflies and other migrating species have pathways in the sky. They don't know where we have established our political you know, stake in the ground here or there, and getting four countries that, again, don't agree about a lot of things, but they do agree that if they work together, everybody's going to benefit the ocean, but people too. So cause for hope. Around in the Sargasso Sea, big ocean gyre in the southern part of the North Atlantic that runs from Bermuda all the way to Portugal, this swirling mass of water that is a place where the seaweed, sargassum, is known to exist like a floating golden forest of life. It's a habitat out in the open sea where sea turtles can hang out and find safety 
little ones especially, you know, they're if, if they're just open for predators, if they're out in the open blue water, but with this forest of floating seaweed, they have a, a, a place to go and hide and also find food themselves to eat while trying to keep from being eaten. And it's shelter for hundreds of other species, including some that are found only in Sargassum. Unique. It's a unique habitat. But it's an example of, of understanding what we did not and could not know before the present time about how all of these things tend to tie together. Now 14 nations around the Sargasso Sea and a bit beyond have come together to commit, although it's not legally binding, they have signified their support for protection for the nature of this miraculous floating golden forest and the the, the life that is contained in the Sargasso Sea. So reasons for hope. The United Nations does have a, a, a mechanism for coming together on a global scale to protect the high seas. That's the area beyond national jurisdiction. Nations claim out 200 miles. What's out there beyond that in the open sea beyond 200 miles? It's the global commons. And I think most people are not quite aware, even though you can look at Earth from space and see it's most, mostly blue, I think the perception is somebody owns all of it somehow. But the fact is, if somebody does, it's probably the plankton, the whales, the tunas, and all the others that should claim ownership. But we only extend jurisdiction out 200 miles. The rest amounts to about half of the world. There's a global commons where jurisdiction, such as it is, is governed by the international law of the sea, a treaty that came into effect in 1993. And the United Nations, sadly, on the United States, sadly, is while we abide by the general principles of the international law of the sea, we have not ratified the treaty. So other nations are making decisions about, for example, the fate of the deep sea in the high seas, the global commons, with respect to deep sea mining. We can be observers, we can influence, but we don't have a voice at the table. Only those who are signatures who've agreed to the law of the sea or have positions at the table, if you will, true to in the high Arctic, which is a part of the high seas beyond national jurisdiction, not nearly as big as the high seas and not big as the area around Antarctica. Again, not owned by any one nation because no one nation owns Antarctica. So the waters around Antarctica, known as the Southern Ocean, are basically high seas. And yet, we, we have created some real dilemmas for ourselves with these politics of who owns what in the ocean. But right now, 
we're witnessing the carving up of the high seas by a few nations, those who come with big bank accounts and are looking at mining the deep sea. Deep sea mining is a pretty hot topic these days. Um, who owns the deep sea and the high seas? Nobody or everybody. We, we should give up the idea that we own the high seas. We have a responsibility and we have some authority to govern ourselves about what we do out there. But to think that a small number of nations, a subset of the 200 or so nations of, of the world, are now making decisions about the way that the deep sea bed under the high seas will be carved up and used or not, depending on the evidence that is presented and acted upon. And about five nations are disproportionately taking fish and squid and other organisms from the high seas. Who, who is going to say no? What's the governance of this wild ocean that occupies half the world beyond where national jurisdiction extends? There's a lot of really terrible human actions that are taking place in terms of, of people who are acting as effectively as slaves who are brought on board industrial fishing vessels and kept there for years. Kept on the boats for years. Right. Sylvia, uh, are governments listening to you and your colleagues about the relationship between extraction and oxygen and carbon monoxide? Well, Richard, I think I may call you Richard, sorry. Of course, of course. But the, it's all about knowing. 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, whatever, we did not know enough to be able to make the connections of the sort that we now can. Yes. The connection between whales and the carbon in whales, the connection in all living things, land and sea, and climate. This is a living planet. This is not just rocks and water we're talking about. Climate is driven by a living system, not just a dead planet. Through <laughs> you, you don't see the, the processes anywhere else in the universe. I mean, the laws of nature are what they are, but this is a living system. And the laws of nature acting on this living system are what we now must address. Follow the carbon cycle, follow the water, follow the temperature. And how do we get to have this miraculous life support system? And what are we doing to compromise it and therefore our existence, our health, our security. Oh yes, and our economy. We, we somehow have talked ourselves into thinking that all of nature is free. The ocean is just like a place you can go and take, like a grocery store. You can take, 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 and you don't have to check out. You just take it. Nobody, you don't have to pay, except we're all paying the cost. 
because this is our life support system. We are taking little bites out of it. Nibble, 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 bite, bite, bite. And now, now 90% of the sharks are gone. 90% of the tunas, 97% of the bluefin tunas in the Pacific are gone, but because there's such a market for them, because we're susceptible to marketing, we believe what we're told when it's told in a creative sort of way. And we talked ourselves into thinking that we have to eat fish for our health. Only <laughs> now we can see that it's not really healthy for the ocean. And what we're putting into the ocean that comes back to us through consuming seafood, sea life, not really good for us either on that way or in terms of, of what we're doing to the systems that keep us alive. You know, we have to find other ways to feed ourselves, not with, uh, not with wildlife, not with wild birds, not with tons of wild animals in the supermarkets. We don't do that. We grow, and we need to get better about growing what we eat. But listen, all of this shines the clear message. We know better. We, we know what to do. We can do this. We can feed ourselves deliciously and nutritiously and sustainably if we just obey the laws of nature. And if we also rethink our, our economics, fish are not free goods. They are part of what keeps us alive. And yes, some people will take them because they have to, because they, they really need wildlife for food. So that's true with, in forests, they call it bushmeat. But it's a small fraction of what is actually being taken from the sea and marketed to people who have never in their entire long history of their family or their culture had these unusual animals on their plates, but they're, they've been led to believe that their sustenance or their, we, we've been marketed to believe that we have to eat them. So, you know, in my mind, as I listen to you, Sylvia, is as if. I'm feeding myself by cutting pieces off my body and eating them. Yeah. I'm starting with my toes and then my feet and then my legs. And I just keep whittling and chopping pieces off my body and chewing it up and swallowing and thinking that that's how I'm going to feed myself. It's a pretty scary image. Be careful. As soon as, no, I, no. <laughs> as soon as I finish my legs, where do I go next? Be careful of your heart. Don't, don't, don't bite into that. <laughs> be careful of all our hearts. So are you and, 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 and many or most or all of your colleagues vegetarians? Um, I, I was not as a child because, I, you know, we just didn't know. We were omnivores. Right. It's mostly plant eaters because we had a huge garden, a little farm where I spent my childhood. And, oh, you know, fresh lima beans and tomatoes and corn and all of the things that we could grow. I, there's nothing that tastes better to me even today. 
what we could grow ourselves in our in our big backyard. And I still do it here where I live in California and in Florida. I my mom and dad's place there is just it's a garden. And not everybody has the privilege of having a piece of land where they can grow things. Where are you in California? Um, I am in Oakland, California. Okay. I'm in California also. I'm in Mendocino County. I live right on the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) And I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm rethinking about how I think of the ocean as I'm listening to you more and more. Because the thing that I've been most aware of is the plastic, of course, that there's yeah. a plastic mound in the ocean that's supposedly the size of Texas, and that I'm very aware of. But but the, the way you describe the extraction has given me a new perspective, which I very much appreciate, and I hadn't really considered it that way before, but the, the amount. And I'm wondering, you know, how do we turn it around when we have so many millions of people involved in making money and in eating that way. How right. do we turn that extraction around? It's a different thing than stopping hunters from going to Africa. It's a very different thing. No, it's the same thing in a way, except on a commercial industrial scale. It's killing wildlife. Yeah. People somehow I'm blank. I don't know why. Fish are wild animals. And some of them older than your grandparents that turn out to be a 10-minute piece of meat on your plate. And and fish, of course, are not different from meat. (laughs) They're wild animals. And, well, and what we need to do, all of us, try to share the insight. That's basically what I, not all of myself, but drawing on on the insights, the knowledge that many people have been acquiring in recent decades and to distill it in ways that make it accessible to people. And the discipline in writing Ocean, A Global Odyssey, was to try to channel all of this amazing information that we now have and to bring it to the public in 50 word or thousand word bites with great images and maps and all of the rest that make it entertaining, informative, sometimes humorous, <laughs> sometimes yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> in whatever way, but meant to really delight people with what we now know and also to inspire them to say, oh, Maybe you might say, I didn't know that the way you just said to me. I, I, I wasn't quite aware of how much we're taking out of the ocean. But once you know, you can't unknow. And maybe that new insight, new knowledge will inspire you to go further, go deeper, go see for yourself. Ask questions the way kids do. And, and don't be satisfied if you just get a brush off or uh, something that doesn't really makes sense to you. And the one question that I found myself asking as a kid, and I ask it right now, is why not? Why not? You ask why, how, what, when, but ultimately, why can't we go from where we are to get to a better place? Why not? 
What's holding us back? I mean, laws of nature, okay, there are certain inexorable processes that we have to face, but why not work within the systems that govern the way the world works now that we know what they are? Imagine if we didn't know, but we do know. We know about global warming. We know the causes. We know who's responsible, and we know who can fix it. Look in the mirror. That would be you, me, us. We have the power. We do. And we have time, <laughs> but not a lot. So, But not a lot. We're hearing more and more that we don't have a lot. You know, the, the other day, I drove by a building here in Fort Bragg, and the building is now a bank. And it used to be a place where you rented videos. And, yeah. um, and I thought to myself, yeah, I, I know that family. I don't know them well, but I knew who it was, the family that owned that video store. And they had a great business. They were renting videos and almost everybody in town. It was such an exciting thing to be able to go in and rent a video and take it home and watch it without going to the theater. Yeah. <laughs> They're no longer in existence because oh. now you can push a button on your computer and get the same video. And I'm mentioning that because I'm thinking that this Fort Bragg where I live is also a fishing, a commercial fishing town. Hmm. And I'm thinking, all these commercial fishermen have to either go out of business and find something else to do, or they have to modify what they're doing on a grand enough scale so that we keep our oxygen coming. Correct. Because oxygen is our life force. Correct. And, I'm, and I multiply this little Fort Bragg towards times thousands or tens of thousands of little Fort Braggs all around the world. And it's overwhelming to think of the number of people who will be out of work, who have to find a new business now that renting videos is no longer a business that's viable. They're in the exact same we, situation. We, we know we can change when our lives depend on it. We, we changed because of COVID-19 climate, we know our lives depend on changing. I mean, seriously, it's, it's life-threatening. It's not just it would be a nice thing to do. It's a vital thing for us to do. And we must change our attitude about wild animals on the land and in the sea. We did change to some extent with wild birds. There are far fewer wild birds today than when I was a child. And certainly when my parents were children, but I have been a witness to a comparable, sharp, much faster decline of ocean wildlife because unlike birds that we never took by the, by, on the, in terms of 100 million tons of wild birds in a single year, we're taking about that much of wild animals from the sea. When you count the wild, the animals that are killed as bycatch and just tossed, we're, we we killed them, even though they don't go to market. We destroyed the habitat, clear cutting the ocean floor, using trawls. Doesn't get accounted for when you buy your fish from the market, and the subsidies taxpayers are paying to support industrial fishing, and even the smaller scale commercial fishing enjoys certain support from taxpayers because of low interest or no interest loans on 
fishing gear and on fuel for going out to catch the wild animals and for marketing our Department of Commerce, the National Marine Fisheries Service within NOAA does a lot of good stuff, many important positive actions, but they also foster the large scale extraction of ocean wildlife. You know, we don't even think of fish as wildlife. We think of wildlife trade as something that we need to really be worried about, you know, like ivory from elephants and zebra skins and polar bear fur and things like that wildlife trade. But how different is that from tuna? I mean, it isn't. These are wild animals, top carnivores, that we're paying our fishermen to go out and take and subsidize their, you know, the taking. And then we think of it as something good for our health. Let's think of that as something good for the fishermen. Fishmen have, don't have to pay for what they take. They just have to pay to get out there with some help from the government. I, I mean, yes, it will be hard for some to change, both in terms of consuming. You, you get hooked on calamari. Or you get hooked on, oh, I've got to have my halibut. Or tuna. I, I'm so fond of tuna. But when you really understand it, and you really think it through, it really doesn't taste that good especially when you think about what the fish have been well, eating. It doesn't taste that good when your life is involved, your very existence is involved. I was a, I was a cheese eater. Relationship between cheese and cholesterol. And I thought it was more important to have good oxygen in my system than to have myself clogged up with cholesterol. <laughs> and I just made a little connection between my Special, one of my specialties and yours. One of my specialties is psychedelic medicine, and I published a book called Psychedelic Medicine. And one of the things that's reported by many people who have experimented with psychedelics is a realization of, of what you know deeply, that the earth is one living, breathing organism, and all people are is one of the species on this living, breathing organism that we all share. And this, mm -hmm. my, my next book, which is at the publisher now, is called Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders. And I've interviewed people in their 70s and 80s, prominent people, some famous and scientists, who have been experimenting with psychedelics for 30 or 40 years, sub rosa, because they're illegal. And a very common element amongst all these people is this realization of the wholeness of the planet. And, and one of my early experiences that got me involved with, psych, with the, the study of psychedelic medicine was when I took LSD as a young person. And I, I had a visual image that every person on the planet is connected in some way, that we are really all one big animal but we're little parts of one big animal. And from there, it's not much to jump to the realization that, of course, the Earth itself is one, if you want to say animal, it's one big living, breathing organism. And so I find myself now in search of looking for something of all this, thinking that maybe this current renaissance that's going on around the world 
of interest in psychedelic medicine will illuminate more people to what the, the kinds of things that you're saying, to the, to the imperative. Well, let me just bring our, in and say... The imperative of our respecting that this is our body. But then, let me just make one observation that if you put on a face mask and dive into the ocean, it's an awareness of the splendor of life. And it may, I, I, ha, I haven't experienced what you're describing, but I have seen something comparable in terms of understanding by diving into the ocean and seeing these exquisite animals and other organisms and realize what you're saying. We're all connected. The chemistry of life, you break it down into the basic elements and you look as we now can because of discoveries in the last half century or so about the nature of life and that the common chemistry that we all share from microbes to whatever, the largest creatures on earth, trees included, the basic recipe, the arrangement of, of the building blocks of life have common themes. And yet we're all ourselves as individuals. And so is every fish, so is every starfish. That's the, the double miracle of the continuity and common ground coupled with how everyone is an individual. And it makes me just thrilled that I have the capacity as a 21st century human being to see this, understand this, and want to share that insight with everybody so they can be, experience that sense of wonder and then use it, use it to get from where we are to get to a better place. I really thank you for what you're doing to develop that insight and share your view of the world. Well, it's my privilege to listen to you, Sylvia. I think on those beautiful words of yours, we'll end, and I'm gonna save a couple of questions for after we're done. Okay. Thank you.